good afternoon. It's good to see everyone here. Uh, welcome to Zoe Community Church. Uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and every week we open up the Bible to see what it says, what God's word has for us. Today, I'd like you, if you have your Bible, to grab it. And I'd like to invite you to open up to the book of Proverbs. Okay, Proverbs. If you've been here with us, you thought I was going to say 1 Samuel. But we're actually going to be taking a break from 1 Samuel for the summer. Spend some time in Proverbs. Uh, and there are a few reasons for this because we're like halfway through. So I wanted to let you know kind of why we're doing this. The first reason is because if you were here last week, you know that we kind of got to a natural break in the book, right? Where Saul is removed. And next week or uh, the next time we get into 1 Samuel, we're going to see David being anointed as king. So that was kind of a good natural break in the narrative. Um, but kind of on a bigger picture level, the reason why we wanted to do a different book in the first place is twofold. So one is uh, during the summer, right, we're realistic about this. People travel, people are gone. And the thing about 1 Samuel is that it's a plot, right? There's a narrative. It's, it's a historical story. So the thing about 1 Samuel is it's hard if you miss a week or if you listen out of order, it can kind of mess you up. So we're going to do something else that's expository still, but at least they're more standalone. So you can listen to it in a different order. You could miss one, God forbid, but if you miss one, it's not going to mess you up for the rest of them. Uh, and then secondly, the reason why we're doing this is because we need to get into Proverbs sometime. I really believe that. Uh, First and Second Samuel are some of my favorite books in the Bible, uh, tied with the other 64 books. I, I love them all. Uh, but Proverbs has certain truth, okay? It's different. It, it covers different things in the whole counsel of God than First and Second Samuel do. So we're going to take a break. We're going to get into Proverbs. We're not going to cover the entire book, okay? That would be really hard to do in just one summer. Um, but we're going to come back to it again and again, Lord willing, throughout the life of Zoe so that we could kind of get some wisdom every once in a while. We could grow in this area. So hopefully you're in the book of Proverbs. I told you to turn there. I didn't turn there yet. But Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to start uh, not by looking at any particular proverb today. Uh, we're going to get into that in the coming weeks, different topics, different themes that the book of Proverbs talks about. Really what we're going to do is we're going to take a deep dive into certain individual proverbs for the most part. So we're barely going to scratch the surface when it comes to this whole book. But today, even though that's in the future, today, what we're going to do is we're going to introduce kind of the overall theme of the book, which is wisdom itself. Okay, so we're going to look at verses 20 through 33. We're going to pray and then we're going to get into it. Let me read Proverbs 1 verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, I stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. Excuse me, calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. 
They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, but have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon and we ask that you would speak to us through your word. God, this time ultimately is not about me. It's not about us, though we want to be fully engaged. God, this time is about you. It's about learning who you are, what your will is for us, focusing our attention upon you, looking to you. So God, I pray that you would help us. You know our weakness. You know our foolishness. You know our sin that we struggle with. You know that we are imperfect people, imperfect Christians. So God, we ask for grace and mercy. We know that you are a God of grace and mercy. So we are hopeful. God, we are humble, hopefully, before you. And we ask, as people who don't deserve it, that you would help us. Thank you for this time, God. Thank you for this word. And I pray that you will use it, that you will use your word in the way that only you can to pierce our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have any of you ever heard of the Antwerp World Diamond District before? Anybody? Anyone into diamonds? Okay, less people than choose your own adventure. Okay, even less. I'm getting less relevant. But if you're not familiar, let me tell you about it. I didn't even know about it until recently. Okay, in Belgium, one of the most uh, uh, concentrated places where wealth is, one of the densest concentrations of wealth in the entire world is in this Belgium area called the Antwerp World Diamond District. I was looking it up. 80% of the world's rough diamonds pass through this district every year. And in the center of the district is one single building called the Antwerp World Diamond Center. And within the center, within this building, are some of the rarest and most valuable jewels in existence. Now, let me explain this to you, okay? I want to give you a feel for what this place is like. Beneath the center is a vault. And that vault has 10 layers of -of state-of-the-art security. Okay, it almost seems like overkill. Let me tell you what the 10 layers are briefly. First, it's two stories underground, okay, beneath the building, under the roads, under concrete. Second, it has a camera recording what's in front of the vault door 24 hours a day. It's always on. They fix it if it goes out. Third, it has a combination lock with over 1 million possible combinations. Fourth, a physical key lock with a special key that you need. Fifth, a a three-ton solid steel door that can stand up to 12 hours of continual drilling. And I'm going to stop numbering them. Okay, you can take my word for it. It's 10. But after this, after the door, there is this magnetic field. So if you can get the door open, okay, there's a magnetic field that if you, like, trigger it, an alarm will go off. There's a seismic, like, uh, alarm system. So even if you try to, like, shake the door or you, you put a drill to it or you step through and vibrate something, an alarm will go off. There's a light sensor, so if you open the door and light from the room gets in, an alarm will go off. There's, like, kind of one of those laser, like, wall things. I mean, there's 
all these different layers to protect what's inside this vault. Now, I tell you about this because in February 2003, this guy named Leonardo Nodar Bartolo pulled off the quote-unquote greatest heist of the century. Okay, this is a true story. It's not a movie. He successfully broke into the Antwerp World Diamond Center's vault, bypassing every single layer of security. And you want to know how he did it? Okay, you can look it up on Wikipedia if you really want to know. But the short answer is with a lot of hard work. Okay, three years before this, in the year 2000, he set up a business within the building, a semi-legitimate business. He actually went into work every day so that the people there would recognize him, the security would get to know him, and he just worked every day building his cover. During this time, he learned about everything in the building. He had a little pocket pen with a camera, and he recorded everything, and then he assembled this team of guys. And this sounds like a movie, but his friends were, and I wrote it down, the genius, speedy, the monster, and the king of keys. And even to this day, we have no idea what their real names are. They were never caught. So he had this team. They built a replica of the vault with everything that they learned from the pen camera, and they practiced for three years learning how to painstakingly bypass every single layer of security in this vault. And finally, in 2003, in February, Valentine's Day weekend, they felt like they were ready, and they got in, and they pulled it off. They did it. The greatest heist of the century. Now, you might have a bunch of questions about this. It's interesting, right? It's the kind of story that you would make a movie about. In fact, people have made movies just like this. But here's my question, okay? And bear with me, but my question out of all of this to you is why so much effort? Why do you think? I mean this on both sides, right? Why so much effort to protect this vault? Why all of these different alarms and triggers and locks and doors? And then on the other side, why so much effort to break in? Why would you work this job that's fake for three years? Why would you pay rent in this building? Why would you build a replica? Why would you recruit a team? You know the answer, I think. I know the answer. Right? It's so obvious, but I want you to think about it. I want to put it out there in the open. Why so much effort? The reason is pretty simple. The reason is diamonds and jewels are just that valuable right? They went away with a hundred million dollars in diamonds and rare jewels. I mean, you could work your entire life at a pretty good job. Your kids could work their entire lives. Their kids, you get the picture and you still wouldn't even touch a fraction of that a hundred million dollars. It's why there's all this security. It's why people kill and are killed over diamonds. It's even in a small reason why we propose for marriage with diamond rings because it's valuable. Diamonds are outrageously valuable. Now, all that being said, listen to this verse. Proverbs 8, verse 11. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Let me say that again. Wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Now, here's another question. Do we think of wisdom that way? I mean, does it make sense? 
If, if someone said that they were going to work three years painstakingly so that they could gain a little bit of wisdom, would you say that they were smart or foolish? Is wisdom valuable to us? And if not, the follow-up is, why not? It says so right in scripture. See, here's the thing. Okay, we're going to talk about different aspects of wisdom. We're going to talk about different proverbs. But before we get into this series, before we even start talking about, you know, like what wisdom calls us to do, before we start unpacking this text, we need to think about how much we really want what Proverbs has in its vault. According to the word of God itself, wisdom is more valuable than the most valuable things on earth. But the question is, do we believe that? Do we accept that? Do we buy that? Do we understand what wisdom truly is? See, the question we might have today is, why the big deal? Who cares? Right? Wisdom, it's nice, but it's not necessary. What this passage talks about today is that we got to flip that. Okay, wisdom is necessary. Wisdom is valuable. So let's get into it. Okay, I'm going to try to just unpack this text. Hopefully wisdom herself will make the case for her. Three parts as we do. First, what wisdom is, or rather who wisdom is. Second, what wisdom says. And three, why wisdom matters. First, who wisdom is. Look at the text. Verse 20, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out at the entrance of the city gates she speaks. Notice, first of all, that wisdom, you can see it right here, that wisdom is talked about as a person. You see that? It was in the verse we read earlier too. Nothing we desire compares with her, not it. This is called personification. Okay, it's a literary device. And this is important to talk about because sometimes we forget that the Bible is literature. Okay, don't get me wrong. It's not only literature. It's not just a man-made book. It is the inspired word of God, but the Holy Spirit inspired men to write in different genres and different styles. And you know this, right? A letter from an apostle is very different than a poem from the Psalms. It's very different than a prophecy from the prophets, different than a historical account of something that happened like First Samuel, which we're going through. I mean, we read the Bible literally, of course, but we also read it literarily. So just so we're on the same page, right? Literally, Okay, Proverbs 1 is not talking about, you know, a person named Wisdom who talks a lot in the market. Okay, this is actually in Hebrew, if you look at it, poetic structure. It's a poem. This is a word picture. Okay, the, the text is trying to teach us something about what wisdom is by making wisdom into something or someone that we can relate to. See, personification is helpful because what it does is it takes something that is impersonal and abstract and it makes it personal. It gives it human characteristics so that we can relate to it better. And the truth is, wisdom is pretty abstract. Wisdom by itself, uh, it's something that is hard for us to really define. We might not be on the same page when we think about wisdom ourselves. So what the text is doing for us, what the intro of Proverbs is doing, is taking something abstract and putting flesh and bone to it. I mean, even, you know, I've been talking about wisdom. I've mentioned wisdom a few times in this sermon already. What were you thinking when I said wisdom? 
going to talk about wisdom this summer. What image popped into your mind? What definition? What idea? I mean, do you think of short, pithy platitudes? Something like the Proverbs or maybe other little like short sayings of wisdom, a penny saved is a penny earned or something like that. Or do you think of learned experience? Do you think of someone that you knew that was older and, and he or she was really wise because they had lived a long time and they had a lot of lessons to share? Do you think of someone who has given a lot of thought uh, to deeper things, kind of like a philosopher or something, or a monk who goes away and contemplates and they have these ideas that they can share with people who ask and who seek and who knock? There's kind of this stereotypical image of wisdom out there in the world, a combination of all of the above. Right? It's like the guru out on a mountaintop, and you make a pilgrimage to go see him, and then you ask him for help, and he turns you away, but then you keep on persisting, and then finally he says something esoteric that you don't understand, but inside of that is a nugget of true wisdom. That's what we think. The wise man is someone who has had many experiences. who spent a lot of time thinking about it. Someone who is smart, who penetrates with his insight. Someone who is hard to reach. Someone we need to seek. But that's not what we see here at all. Not at all. Right? The picture of wisdom that Proverbs starts with, wisdom according to God's book of wisdom, Proverbs, isn't primarily about experience or intellect at all. Not even primarily about knowledge. Though knowledge and experience are a part of it, don't get me wrong. But primarily, what wisdom is about, when we look at the portrait of wisdom painted here, wisdom is a woman at the market. You see that? Wisdom is in the market. She is a person, someone you might pass by every day. You don't have to make a pilgrimage to find her. She's not secluded away from everything up on a mountain. She's always there, and she's in your daily life and routine. <clears throat> see, the word for wisdom in Hebrew is the word chokmah. If we understand chokmah right, we'll be ahead of the game. Chokmah does not primarily refer to just knowledge or learning or experience or insight. Those all might be part of it, but primarily what chokmah is, is knowledge applied. Probably the best translation overall for the concept of chokmah is skill. Skill. I mean, think about what we consider skills. Right? Skills are knowledge lived out in real life. Playing an instrument, that's a skill. Dribbling a basketball, that's a skill. Using a sewing machine. You learn how to do something, and then you do it repeatedly, and you become proficient, and that's it. That's how skills work. So when the Bible talks about hokma, it's talking about skills, but applying it to life. Hokma is being good or getting better at living. And the purpose of acquiring wisdom is to keep on improving. It's not for the monastery or the mountaintop only. It's not for uh, just certain people who have lived a long time. It's for every single person in every single place. It's for the home. It's for the workplace, for your friendships. It's for your ordinary conversations, for how you spend your days and weeks and months. Hokma wisdom is for you right now. And so we'll see that Proverbs themselves are incredibly practical. Sometimes you even wonder, why is this in Scripture? It doesn't have, it, some of them, I mean, a lot of them do have to do with God explicitly, but some of them you're like, what does this have to do with religion? What does it have to do with spirituality or worship? I mean, how to talk to people so that they don't get irritated at you? This doesn't seem like something that you read about in the Bible. 
but wisdom teaches us how to not only live morally right, but practically better. And here's the thing. I think as Christians, it's easy to neglect this overall. I mean, of course, right, uh, we care about our lives at a certain level, right? Like if we do something wrong, right, we lose our temper at our kids and we get out of control, angry, then we feel bad about it, right? We repent, we say sorry to our kids, hopefully we confess. If we look at pornography, we, we repent and we turn back to God. If someone catches us in a lie, we know we did wrong and we ask for forgiveness. On the positive side, we try to read the Bible, we try to serve, we try to be faithful, we try to go to church, we try to reach out to other people. But how often in the middle of those things do we think about our everyday lives? How often do we think about the little things? These things are important. How often do we think about, you know, what kind of friend you are to other people? How often do you think about what comes out of your mouth daily? Not just your worship, not just your evangelism, not just your teaching, but just how you talk to people. How often do you think about how teachable you are in general or how hardworking you are or how you affect other people by how you act how difficult you make life for your parents or your children. I mean, how often are we focusing on these things? See, look at the text again. Wisdom is trying to be heard by anyone who will listen. If you notice the verbs, she cries aloud. She raises her voice. She cries out. She speaks. She's talking to you. She's talking to me. The question is, are we willing to listen? And I think on top of this, right, I think a lot of us in a vacuum are willing to listen. No one says, I don't want wisdom. Forget wisdom. I hate wisdom. Are you distracted? Maybe you're going about your whole life and you're just not thinking about it. Because if you notice in the text, it's not just that wisdom is in your everyday life. She's where everyone else is too. She's in the market. In the ancient Near Eastern marketplace, there were people everywhere. People selling, people haggling, people mingling around. The city gates were where people met to talk, where the men of the city would gather every day to just talk about stuff. There was no internet, okay? There were no phones. People were talking. They were meeting ideas and advice. They were being exchanged. These were busy areas. So wisdom speaks in a place where there are a lot of voices. I mean, if you think about it, you can think about it in a more modern context. Wisdom uploads a YouTube video telling you everything that you need to know about life, but there are 10,000 other videos being uploaded that very second. That's how the world is today. Wisdom tweets out some nuggets of gold, but there are a million other voices tweeting and giving you their own versions of gold. I mean, the question for us is who do we listen to? Because we're always listening. It's not just do you listen to wisdom or not, but do you listen to wisdom or who do you listen to? I mean, when it comes to parenting, where do you get your advice? Let's just be practical. I mean, maybe you get it from some Christian people, but when was the last time you read what Proverbs had to say about parenting? What about how you deal with conflict with certain people? I mean, maybe you do it like your parents did. Was that good or bad? I don't know. But have you read Proverbs to find out? What about how we deal with suffering or anxiety? I mean, there are people all around, you know, there are, you know, aunties and uncles that want to give you advice. There are a million lifestyle gurus that build their brand, telling you how to live the best life, how how to be smart. Few people are talking about what I'm about to tell you and share with you. 
Who teaches you? Wisdom wants to help us. She wants to get our attention. She's talking to you. And this leads to the second point. Okay, that's who wisdom is. She is a person in your everyday life who is talking to you, telling you the right thing to do. Will you listen? Second, what does wisdom say? What is she actually saying when she talks? Now, again, this is all intro. In fact, the first nine chapters of Proverbs are basically intro before we get into the actual Proverbs themselves. But what wisdom keeps on saying in the intro is basically the same thing. Choose me before it's too late. Okay, she spends nine chapters preparing people. She wants you to listen because she knows that if you're not listening, if you're not prepared to actually choose her, then it doesn't matter what she says afterwards because you're not going to hear it. It's going to be pearls before swine. So she says, choose me. Verse 22, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? There are people wisdom is specifically talking to, the simple ones, the scoffers, the fools. The word for simple in Hebrew refers to someone who is naive, someone who doesn't know better. They aren't intentionally being foolish. They just don't know what they don't know. The scoffer is different. The scoffer has heard what wisdom is and rejected it. They scoffed at it, literally. They refuse to consider they might be wrong, right? Have you ever thought about this? Or why do you think that way? Or why are you so confident in what you have to say? Uh, I just am right. I just know. And then the fool is the final form of these two. The fool has gotten to the point of not caring anymore. The foolish are called kesil in Hebrew. The idea is stubbornness. Because sometimes when we call people fool, we mean that we think that they're intellectually, you know, deficient in some way. Okay, like they're not as smart or something. That's not what the Bible is talking about at all. Sometimes the fools are the smartest people. They have the most brain power. The problem with the fool is that they're stubborn. They are set in their ways. They know that they are right, and they don't care what anyone or anything says. Now, who here has breathed a sigh of relief when I talked about these three people? I thought, Jesse, you were talking to all of us that wisdom was for me, but now I realize that wisdom is just talking to these people who need it, the simple and the foolish and the scoffer. I mean, you're not calling me simple, are you? It's kind of insulting. I remember when I first met my father-in-law, um, in the early days, we were kind of getting to know each other a little bit. Uh, and there's a little bit of a language barrier, um, but he was asking me about my life and what I wanted to do. And at the end, he called me a simpleton. He told Christine, you know, he was like, Jesse is kind of a simpleton. And I was like, oh, man, this is not going well. Okay, that's pretty insulting. Um, but what he meant, that's what Christine said. Maybe she was just smoothing it over. She said, what he meant was you just live a simple life. And I was like, okay. Okay, but even that made me, you know, kind of step back. Like, you don't want to be called a simpleton. You don't want to be called a fool. Right away, we turn away. We don't like that. That's insulting. How dare you call me that? I heard a preacher say once when he preached Proverbs that he had just turned, uh, that he had just turned 40 around this time. And I, I remember he was sharing kind of about the whole journey of it. And he was saying that he started ministry when he was in his 20s. Okay, and back then he felt like he knew everything that he was wise beyond his years. Then he said, good thing I waited till I was 40, because once I started teaching Proverbs as a 40-year-old, I realized just what a fool I can be. He said, before I didn't want to hear it, but thankfully, by the grace of God, I was ready to hear it. There's so much foolishness in me that God still has to work in right on time. So all that being said, I say this with love and humility too, because I preach to myself. When wisdom calls out to the simple and the scoffer and the fool, 
wisdom is calling out to you and to me, to all of us. To some degree or another, wisdom speaks to everyone where we're foolish. I mean, listen to this, Proverbs 3, 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. If I can make my appeal to you, don't be wise in your own eyes. Even if you are relatively wiser than everyone else in this room, don't think that you are wise because you'll lose before you even begin. Don't assume you aren't simple in some ways. Again, we don't often know what we don't know. Don't assume that you aren't a scoffer. Don't assume that you aren't a fool. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. I mean, it's, it's better to own your own foolishness, to even consider that you might be foolish than to assume that you're wise. A wise man is always teachable, always ready to learn more and be corrected. Proverbs 9, 9, give instruction to a wise man and he will still, or he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. So even if you are wise, the wise know that we always have more to learn. Lady Wisdom is speaking to every single person in this room. She's speaking to every single person for all time, but for us, she's speaking to us right now. She wants everyone to grow, to get better at life. Don't assume she's talking to your neighbor. She's talking to your cousin. She's talking to the person next to you, your enemy. Just assume that she's talking to you individually. She wants you to change. And Proverbs starts here before it gets into the Proverbs because it's not profitable for people who already assume that they got everything figured out, that they're here to be the teacher. They won't be profitable for people to already assume that they are wise. Proverbs starts here because wisdom knows that people tend to ignore her. Do you see that? Oh, sorry, I thought you were talking to someone else. Oh, were you saying something? I wasn't even listening. Proverbs starts here because wisdom knows that it's an uphill battle from the beginning. Now, notice the text again. She speaks to our affections. She speaks to our hearts. Verse 22, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Wisdom calls us to swim upstream, to go against the grain, to do something that isn't natural or easy for us. It's easier to avoid wisdom. Ignorance is bliss. It's more existentially comforting to double down on your own natural ways of looking at things. It's instinct to hate knowledge that doesn't agree with what you already know. Do you see that? It's easier to think, well, everyone else had a problem. That's why we had conflict. Oh, my kids are just the worst. That's why it has nothing to do with my parenting. And yet wisdom calls for us to change, each of us to change, with a promise and a warning. In verse 23, she says to turn at her reproof. And the idea here is something we should be familiar with from 1 Samuel, repentance. It's a 180 in life. Wisdom isn't just good advice. It's a call to change course, to turn around, to go in a different direction than the way that you're going right now. And what it starts with today isn't anything specific. It's just the general idea. Do you want to turn from yourself to wisdom? Wisdom just says, turn to me, be open to what I have to say, open up your ears and listen. If we can make that commitment today, there's a promise for you, verse 23. If you, if you turn at my reproof, if you turn, 
Behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. If you turn and want to be wise, wisdom will pour out her spirit upon you. She will teach you. See, the thing is, okay, so I have a friend, um, and I don't know if he still does this, uh, but what he used to always do is everywhere he went, everywhere we went, he would ask for a discount. He would just ask. You know, he'd buy flowers for his wife. Then he'd say, hey, can I get a discount on these flowers? And sometimes they would just say, sure. And they'd take off 10%, 15%. They'd say, leave a good review, man. And he'd be like, okay, I will, thanks. Uh, he would sign up for jujitsu classes, or we go to a restaurant, and he'd be like, hey, can I get a discount? And uh, I remember we were talking about it a little bit, and he says, you just got to ask. Uh, you never know, right? It couldn't hurt. Just ask. And the crazy thing about what he was doing is that a lot of times he got it. This is not advice, okay? It's an illustration. I don't know if it works. It might not work for you. Maybe he was really charming or something, but that's what he would do. But the point is he just asked. He tried. See, the thing is, okay, what wisdom is calling you to do is not that complicated. Just pursue her. Just turn around. Just listen. If you read James 1, James chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, don't presume upon God that he owes you wisdom. But if you ask in faith, God will give you wisdom. You can be a wise person. That's what I'm saying. So as we begin this series, I encourage you to go before the Lord, to pray with faith, and to ask him to correct your course. All of us are foolish in different ways. All of us struggle with different things. I don't know even some of you. I don't know where you're at. Some of you are new and visiting. We want to welcome you. But whoever you are, if you're hearing this word, if you're reading what Proverbs 1 says, I encourage you to pray and to ask God for wisdom. We wouldn't be doing this series if we didn't think God couldn't and wouldn't make us more wise. Proverbs and also Job, Ecclesiastes, they're gifts, they're grace. So turn around. The promise is if you turn to wisdom, she's right there to meet you. But there's also a warning, verse 24. Because I have called you and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. There will come a time where it'll be too late. See, for those who refuse to listen, who shrug and say, whatever, there will come a time when reaping will give way to sowing. And wisdom will laugh then. Okay, now, commentators are pretty unanimous about this. It's not a calloused, cruel laugh, like, ha ha. It's more like the laugh of amazement. Like, I, I, why did you do that? Like, you knew that it was going to, Right? It's almost like you can't even conceive of why this person would do that. That kind of mocking. What did you think was going to happen, man? The thing is, everyone's on a journey. Everyone's going someplace. Everyone is making decisions and choices. We have convictions in our lives, and it's taking us somewhere. We're headed to a destination. 
Your choices, your decisions, your convictions today are leading you somewhere tomorrow and at the end of your life. And if you refuse to listen to wisdom, wisdom is telling you it's going to lead to calamity, terror, distress, and anguish. See, it's not just about, okay, this would be nice for you. There will be consequences if you reject wisdom. Bad choices always lead to bad results eventually. And I remember, you know, I was trying to think of an example of this, and there are a million examples. But one that stood out to me, I was reading this book, um, and one of the stories in the book was about this family, three generations of this family. And the father was an alcoholic, and he was an angry alcoholic, and he would beat his wife and beat his kids up. Uh, and eventually, I think the wife left, and she took some of the kids with him, but she left a couple of the kids at home with him, and they just got beat up every day. Right, And one of the, I think the oldest kid left was a daughter. And the author of the book was friends with the daughter. Okay, so that's kind of the connection. Um, and she became a Christian later. You know, he, he eventually left the house. He just left them, abandoned them. She became a Christian later, you know, and her life totally changed. And she tried to forgive her dad, obviously. You know, she knows what the Bible talks about when it talks about forgiveness. But then her father showed up like years later. And he's like, I became a Christian too. You know, I'm forgiven and, you know, I want to have a relationship with you. And she said, you know, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to forgive this guy. And I'm trying to. But honestly, I want nothing to, I don't want to hang out with this guy. Like my only memory of him is him beating us up every day. And now he just wants to like show up in my life after 40 years. So it was a big struggle. Okay. It was a big struggle. It was huge. And it was so sad because uh, at the end of his life, so he was old when he came back, and then he, was, he got sick, and he was on his deathbed in the hospital. And all he wanted was to see his kids, and they didn't want to come back. You know, like, getting kind of emotional, yes. feels bad. Um, it's sad, right? And uh, the thing that really got me in the story was that his granddaughter, okay, his daughter's daughter was like, I got to go see him, you know, just because he's dying. And he was, like, not, like, in his right mind. He was kind of confused because he was almost dead. And he, like, thought his daughter came back. So... Anyway, I read the story and I was like getting kind of teary-eyed. I'm getting kind of teary-eyed now. But you can kind of see like this is what happens. Choices have consequences. Was the daughter wrong in holding a grudge or struggling with it? I think so. I think she knew that. I think everyone knew that she should try to work on forgiving her father and being gracious. But at the same time, who can't understand why it was hard? It's obvious. Everything that he had sowed up to that point led to what he reaped at the end of his life. And he, even if she did forgive him, even if she did come to his deathbed, she barely knew him at all. He was gone all those years. Now, again, it's sad. It breaks your heart. But the point is, in real life, you reap what you sow. And he wasn't a Christian, right, when he was younger. He died a Christian, so he's in heaven, praise God. But in this life, he had to deal with the consequences. And his kids had to deal with the consequences. And their kids had to deal with the consequences. You reap what you sow. Verse 29. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, but have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. What wisdom is saying is, Whatever you sow, it's going to come back around. What are you sowing then? That's the question. 
What kind of fruit are you growing in your life when it comes to your relationships, how you talk to people, how you deal with money, when it comes to your marriage, to your words, to your children? You will eat the fruit of whatever you are sowing right now. That's the warning. And this leads to the final point. Why wisdom matters. Why wisdom matters. Maybe, you know, at this point, you can kind of figure it out. You put the pieces together. You understand why wisdom matters. But we need to talk about it explicitly. Wisdom matters because you only get one shot at this. Wisdom matters because you only have one life. This is your stewardship. This is what God has given you. I want to show you something in Matthew 7. Keep your place in Proverbs 1. But quickly, Matthew 7. I think you know this passage. Sermon on the Mount. How many of you were here when we preached the Sermon on the Mount? Like, very few, okay? Uh, It's been a while. Um, Part of me wishes we could do it again. Maybe we will. But Proverbs 7, 24, famous passage. I want to read it to you and then draw out one thing. This is Jesus speaking, preaching a sermon on the mount. Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Now, obviously, you could preach a whole sermon in this. You could preach more than one sermon from this. There's a lot in here, but I simply want to point out one thing. The wise man gives thought to where and how he builds. The wise man is thoughtful about where he's going to construct his house because it's his house. It's where he's going to live. The foolish man does not. And the consequences are insanely high. Listen, your whole life could come crashing down if you don't think about it, if you don't do it. So let's let's finish out in Proverbs 1. Back to the text. But to switch the metaphor, to borrow the language of Matthew 7, your life isn't just a journey with a destination. You're not just heading somewhere. But if you think about it, your life is a construction project and you're adding to it every single day. You're choosing where to add bricks. You're choosing how to spend your time to make it more practical. You're choosing the words that you say, the relationships that you begin or end, how you spend your money how much money you want to make. You're making these choices. You're building your life. And if your life isn't built on wisdom, with wisdom, what do you think is going to happen? Just wondering. Verse 32. For the simple are what? They're sad because they turned away and their life wasn't as good as it was supposed Simple, the simple here in the text, it doesn't say that. It says the simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. It's not potential 
pain only. It's not potential suffering or not having the best results. This is life and death. Foolishness is ultimately fatal. And notice it's their what that kills them. It's their complacency. It's not that they chose foolishness, that they wanted to be fools, that they wanted to be evil. It's because they were complacent and they didn't care when wisdom was calling out to them. You don't have to choose foolishness to be a fool. You just have to choose nothing. Choose to do nothing. Ride the wave of this sermon and this sermon series. Kind of let it just move you along a little bit on your boat. And then just let it pass you by. Right? I'll, I'll focus on God in other ways. We'll do First Samuel and maybe I'll be convicted by that. If we don't listen to wisdom, it's going to lead to destruction. And I know some of us know we don't have that much time. But I think a lot of us, we think we have a lot of time. We do. I'll change tomorrow. I'll get started on this next week. We'll see how convicting and how polished these sermons are. And then I'll see if I want to change. You never know. In fact, one of the few times that God explicitly calls someone a fool to their face is to the rich fool who thinks he has all this time. And then God says, you fool, didn't you know that your life was required of you today? I met very few people who intentionally wanted to ruin their lives. You got to understand the simple, if they knew that they were heading toward destruction, if they knew the seriousness, if they understood the stakes, if they could see themselves clearly, then maybe they would change, but they don't see themselves in the story. Very few people intentionally want to ruin their lives. No one says, my goal is massive debt so that I'm constantly stressed. No one sets out to be that way. No one says my goal is to have out of control and then eventually estranged kids. No one says my goal is to be an arrogant jerk that pushes people away all of the time. But I do know people who spend a lot, right? And again, I'm not saying you have to spend a certain way or not. We'll talk about money later on in the series. What I'm saying is they have no concept of how their spending relates to the rest of their lives. I know people too who are unengaged with their kids and aren't sowing time, both quality and quantity into them. And then they're surprised later when they don't have a good relationship. And I do know people that are very difficult people, but they don't know how to separate their convictions from the truth of the word of God. So they're always fighting in church. I've seen it a million times. They can't be happy in any church because no church is perfect. And of course they recognize that they're theological. A lot of times they know the word, but they can't in their day-to-day lives wisely handle that reality. So they're like, Hey pastor, this person is sinning. What's wrong with them? I can't handle that. I'm going to leave. So they go to the next church and the next church and the next church. And maybe it's not sinful for them to leave, but they end up being a person who's never grounded themselves in a church. They don't know how to deal with sinners in this world in a wise way. They don't have any friendships because they've been moving forever. I'm not thinking about any of you in particular. Okay, I'm not trying to judge you, but I've known many people like this. It's sad. And yet the truth is, it's not uncommon at all. And the truth is, We were created to live our lives fully for God in a way that pleases him, in a way that makes the best use of the time. 
using our money as a stewardship to bless others. Being a friend, maybe a friend who is closer than a brother. We're created to use the things that God has given us wisely so that we might honor him and love other people. But in sin and foolishness, we all turn away. None of us are righteous. No, not one. So Jesus, who himself is wisdom from God, 1 Corinthians 1, he came to die for us fools. He came to die for us sinners. He paid the penalty of God's wrath for the wrongs we have done. And if you are a Christian, you are saved. You are going to heaven. You don't have to be afraid of what's after this life, but you should be concerned. You should care that God has left you in this world, that he has saved you for good works. You should care about the stewardship he has blessed you with as his servant and as his child. I mean, you've been created to live for God, but even more so doubly, you've been saved to live for God. This life belongs to him. Don't waste it. See, I think for a lot of us, wisdom is the missing component. It's the missing link. It's kind of that key that we need to unlock some of our good intentions, maybe. We want to be generous, but we don't have a handle on our money, so we can't. We want to have a strong, uh, we want to have like one strong friend at least, but we don't have a handle on our tongue, so we're always offending people and, and making people feel bad, and they don't want to be our friends. We want to be zealous for the truth, but we don't know how to be humble at the same time, so we're always fighting with people. We're always in conflict, stirring up strife, and we end up taking the, the focus off of truth at the end of the day. I don't want that for you. Wisdom doesn't want that for you. And God doesn't want that for you. So let's listen to wisdom. Verse 33. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Will there be difficulties in life? Yes. Absolutely. Will there still be metaphorical storms? Yes. In fact, I would encourage you to not just read Proverbs, but also Ecclesiastes and Job. They all are different pieces of the pie of wisdom. Proverbs tells you how things normally are, but those other two books tell you about how things go in a fallen world sometimes. Sometimes life is hard, even if you do everything right as much as you can. But what wisdom promises isn't a life that's easy necessarily, but a life that is secure. A life that is free of dread. If you would only just listen. This is about your one God-given, blood-bought life. Will you listen? That's how we start. Let's close here. I want to tell you about Leonardo Notar Bartolo. Kind of a hard name to say. But he got caught. Okay? And that's how we know about the heist of the century. He got caught. What happened was... They, they were so meticulous, but one of them was eating this salami sandwich and he threw it out the window of the car for some reason and the police found it. They used DNA evidence and they traced it to him and they caught him. He never told uh, who his accomplices were, so that's why we have their code names, but he got caught. He got sentenced to 10 years in prison. After all that preparation, it was one salami sandwich that was his downfall. And this week I was watching this short uh, video on what happened. I was just interested in it. Um, and that's where I got this information. And I had a few thoughts. My first thought was, okay, is it really the heist of the century when it was 2003? I mean, it's only been three years since. Anyway, 
I was like, that's not really that great. Um, second, was it worth it? Like, he's in jail, right? I'm like, you know, I mean, 13 years of your life, if you count the preparation, he didn't keep anything. He knew that it was high risk, and he got caught. Was it worth it? He's losing 13 years of his precious life. But my third thought came from the video itself. Like, I was talking about, you know, the vault and talking about how uh, insane this heist was in preparation. Then he says, but you know, stealing is wrong. And it was so... Uh, like just out there, you know, like, of course, stealing is wrong, but he's like, I got to just put it out there. As we all know, stealing is wrong. And that's it. See, it's not about living life to the fullest. And that's part of it, right? But it's not carpe diem, seize the day. It's quorum deo, living before the face of God. Right? This guy was a fool because he did something wrong before God. Money is never worth disobedience. He was actually a fool for all of his smarts. And for us, we have this one life before the face of God, and then we will see him face to face. So do you want to meet your maker as a fool or as someone who listened to wisdom? Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath but righteousness delivers from death. God has called each of us to take this one chance at life and to live it wisely, to do good. And for us who are hearing right now, hopefully through this series, to live better. Wisdom calls to you right now. And the question is, will we turn and listen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And God, we want to be wise. I don't think any of us want to intentionally waste our lives or to be fools. But we want to be wise. So God, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help us to turn away from foolishness. I pray that you would help us to listen. I pray that you would help us to Avoid or fight against distractions, God, that keep us from wisdom. I pray that you would help us with our own love for foolishness that always creeps in. God, I pray that you would help us as a church to live better, to be better in all of these practical areas for you. God, I pray that you would help us, God, to be wise so that you might be honored. God, we need your grace for this. We need your mercy. We need your kindness upon us. But we know that you are gracious, merciful, and kind. So we look to you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.